Well, in yesterday's lecture, I mentioned the fact that Samuel Biersko's understanding of ancient historiography, to which I'm indebted to my own work, was assisted by comparing it with a modern approach to history, in this case, oral history. Now, of course, comparisons of this kind, comparing ancient texts with modern methods, run the danger of anachronism, of projecting onto the work of historians in the ancient world aspects of modern histori historical approaches of which they were innocent. But such comparisons can also be heuristically very helpful. The heuristic approach is to allow a modern phenomenon, in this case an historiographical method or approach, to highlight features of the ancient material that we might not otherwise have noticed. History is not just a matter of reading texts and evidence carefully. It's also a matter of what one looks for and notices in the evidence. Study of the history of historiography quickly shows how regularly historians just do not see what, once we have seen it, seems to be staring them in the face. And often it's something in the historian's present context that opens their eyes to something in the past that others have not seen. So while anachronism is a peril to look out for, the danger, I think, should not deter us from seeking the potential rewards of this kind of heuristic comparison. Now, in the last century or so, the last half century or so, the nature and practice of historiography have been in constant crisis, debate, experimentation, and reformulation. And in tomorrow's lecture, I shall try to sketch that debate as a whole and the kinds of new, new directions in history that have emerged. But for the time being, I want to confine myself in this lecture uh, to just one approach that dates from the 1960s, history from below. So re-envisaging the Gospels as history from below will occupy us in this lecture. That term, history from below, was used by a group of British historians, most notably E.P. Thompson and George Ruday, who pioneered this approach in the 1960s. Early classics of the genre were Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, first published in 1963, and Roudet's The Crowd in the French Revolution, which was first published in 1959. And the term history from, approach, uh, history from below has become widely current. An alternative term, people's history, um, has subsequently also become popular with much the same meaning. History from below began in conscious opposition to traditional history, understood as history from above, that is, history from the perspective of the ruling elites. From antiquity onwards, history proper was political and military history recounted as the doings of the ruling class and from their perspective. In such history, the common people appear only as an anonymous mass. History from below attempts not only a social history of ordinary life, but to view history from the perspective of the common people. It presupposes that society is seen differently 
from the perspectives of different classes and groups within it. Working class history, observes Neil Asherson, is not just the history of the working class, but history as perceived by the working class, a very much more ambitious undertaking. From such a perspective, the common people become not just objects of the deeds and policies of the great, but subjects of their own history. History from below reveals, in E.P. Thompson's words, the agency of working people, the degree to which they contributed by conscious efforts to the making of history. George Rude's work has been praised for putting faces on the crowd. In his The Crowd in the French Revolution, he sought to understand from within the crowd, as it were, how it behaved, how it was composed, what it set out to achieve, and how far its aims were realized. And an important element in history from below is the attempt to recover the ideology of the common people, especially the ideology that informed movements of protest and rebellion. The work of such historians focused on modern periods in which working people collectively took a decisive role in the broad course of events, and for which, moreover, there is abundant evidence. But the further back the historian goes, then, very generally speaking, the more meagre the evidence for use in history from below. Michael Parenti has attempted a people's history of the Roman Republic. He points out how virtually all our sources were written by those he calls gentlemen scholars, who wrote from the perspective of Roman aristocrats, concerned to protect their privilege and having nothing but contempt for the common people of the city of Rome. Parenti also alleges that this patrician perspective has carried over into the work of most modern historians of Rome. His own revisionist story depends on reading the same evidence against the grain as, as a story of popular protest and resistance against oppression and in favour of more equitable and democratic policies. The result, however, is that Parenti's narrative is largely the story of those members of the Roman elite who adopted the cause of the common people and were regarded by the rest of their class as dangerous and seditious demagogues. So we hear about the Gracchi, Clodius, Catiline and Julius Caesar, but the people themselves remain the anonymous mob that supported them. In line with the aims of history from below, Parenti claims for them the role of agents of their own history. He says, in all the proletariat played a crucial but much ignored role in the struggle for democratic policies. They showed themselves to be neither a mindless nor a shiftless rabble, but a politically aware force capable of registering preferences in accordance with their needs and able to distinguish friend from foe. Now this may well be right, but the extent to which we can see it from their perspective is very limited because we lack the evidence. The case is somewhat parallel to one with which New Testament scholars will be more familiar. The use of the works of Josephus, the Jewish historian, to reconstruct the popular movements of resistance and revolution in Jewish Palestine in the first century. 
movements which the aristocratic and pro-Roman Jewish historian Josephus profoundly despised. Richard Horsley's work in particular has attempted such reconstruction through reimagining, with the help of other sources, the religio-political ideas that inspired the popular leaders and their followers. Indeed, Horsley's broad programme of research pursued in a whole series of volumes is very much like a history of Christian origins from below in the manner of E.P. Thompson. Horsley offers a more extensive reconstruction of the mental world of the common people of Palestine than Parenti attempts for the Roman plebs. And in doing so, he offers more hostages to criticism, of course, criticism both of his interpretation of the evidence and of his use of social scientific models. But though I would make some such criticisms of his work myself, it does also encourage me to think that such reconstruction is something historians may feasibly attempt. However, my purpose this morning is not primarily to discuss the writing of ancient history from below by historians today, but rather to use the notion to illuminate the Gospels in the context of ancient historiography. Can the Gospels themselves be classified as history from below? And if so, does this distinguish them from the historiography and biography of the ancient world with which I compared them in the first lecture? So I come to the social world of the Gospels. And for this purpose, we must determine the social level of the people in the gospel narratives. And for this, we do need a social model of some kind. The one I have worked with, like many other scholars, in compiling the charts that you have of social, social stratification in the gospels, um, I've worked with a so-called uh, advanced agrarian society, a basic model of an advanced agrarian society, though I have uh, adapted and modified this um, in order to bring it closer to what seemed to me to be uh, the realities of first century Jewish Palestine. So I've worked with this model and, uh, and uh, found it has some deficiencies for our purposes and tried to make it rather more appropriate and specific uh, for our uh, subject. The classification of people that I've given in the charts is according to social status. Economic resources, of course, to a large extent correlate with social status. Um, but where one takes precedence over the other, as it were, where, where economic resources and social status do not easily coincide, then social status, as it were, uh, takes priority in my attempt to um, uh, place people on this social scale. Now, in an agrarian society of this kind, a large majority of the population are peasants in the sense of people who work the land and live directly from it. The use of this word peasant has come in for some serious criticism of late and I don't use it um, in any further sense. I don't want to carry over ideas about the ideology that peasants necessarily have in all societies. Uh, I use it simply in this basic sense of people who work the land and live directly from it. They comprise farmers who work their own small holdings, 
tenant farmers who rent their farms from large landowners and agricultural workers employed on farms. These and other categories of people such as artisans, fishers and small traders who, who share broadly the same social level as the peasant farmers comprise the common people. They should not be considered either rich or poor in that society's own terms. They were certainly not rich. The most, the most prosperous peasant farmer had incomparably less than the rich elite. We might consider them poor, for many of them lived fairly close to subsistence level, but they would have considered themselves the social norm, those who lived as one should with a modest sufficiency, whereas the rich had too much and the poor were those unfortunate enough to have less than could meet ordinary needs. The, the economic resources of the common people certainly varied, but they were often in danger of becoming poor. Even the peasant farmer with a relatively large small holding that he owned might be forced by a few bad harvests to get into debt to the elite or their retainers and then be deprived of his land, often through dubious legal means. Tenant farmers were even more vulnerable to losing their land. Even so, these average peasants had a relative security of living compared with the acute insecurity of those who neither owned nor rented land. This lack of security, living on the edge of total destitution and starvation, defined the poor. Seasonal workers, but especially the casual workers, the day labourers often mentioned in the Bible, were typical. Day labourers employed no more than a day at a time, living from hand to mouth with the ever-present prospect of unemployment. These were the people for whom it made only too obvious sense to pray for their bread daily as Jesus taught. It might actually be better to sell oneself into slavery, for a slave had at least some security and, was, and it was in the master's interests to provide for his slaves sufficiently for them to remain useful labour. Whereas the employer had no interest in paying casual workers much, since they were always, there were always more of them available. For people who found themselves destitute, selling themselves into slavery was one option. Others were to beg or to take to the hills and join one of the many gangs of bandits. Some people really had no choice but to beg. Only a wealthy family could support seriously disabled or chronically ill people who could not work. Most must have become beggars. Jewish society was certainly kinder in general to the destitute than was the rule in the Roman Empire, but serious destitution there undoubtedly was, as the Gospels themselves confirm. Now, on the charts, I've distinguished the poor, category that includes beggars, from a category of outcasts. Now, here there are some difficulties and anomalies because this group includes, for example, publicly notorious sinners who are not necessarily poor. Um, and the matter is complicated by the fact that another such group is the toll collectors 
who, however, I've placed among the retainers. Now, one could use for the people in my categories of poor and outcasts, as well as for some of the retainers and perhaps even sick members of the elite, such as Jairus's daughter, the term marginalized, people, uh, uh, people pushed to the edge of society, as it were, and this would bring together all the kinds of people whom Jesus either healed or welcomed into his fellowship, um, and this is done by many writers on the Gospels, but I did require a more precise classification for our purposes, and the one I've used is inevitably something of a compromise. One can't do this. It's not an exact science, putting people into these categories, um, but I've tried to do uh, something useful. Um, let's move above the common people on the chart to the retainers, a small part of the population, those who made their living from serving the elite. Um, and this is a uh, this um, class economically. This class is a spectrum that uh, extends from above most people in the peasant class um, down uh, to the bottom of the scale of the ordinary people. Um, unlike some scholars, I should say, I don't classify the Pharisees <coughs> or the ordinary priests who lived in the villages as retainers. Among the elite, I've included both rulers and aristocracy because the poor are not easily, the, 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 sorry, the two are not easily divided. Um, I've also included both urban elite, people who lived in the towns but usually uh, owned large estates in the country, and the rural elite, the leading men in villages, though it is really quite hard to tell either the status or the wealth of these village leaders. Evidently in Galilee, to which most of our gospel evidence relates, the elite were not so culturally distinguished from the common people as the Jerusalem elite were. But between the Jerusalem elite and most Jews, there was a great gulf fixed, not only of wealth, but also of cultural ethos since the elite displayed their superior status by adopting Greek and Roman customs and possessions into their daily life, while the common people seemed to have adopted a rather plain style, not merely for economic reasons, but also as indicative of distinctive Jewish identity and solidarity. Typically, in advanced agrarian societies, the elite comprise only 2% of the population, but control more than half of the wealth of their society. We can't apply these kind of figures uh, woodenly to um, first century Palestine, but it probably gives a rough notion of the state of affairs. The elite include a few very wealthy merchants who typically join the landed aristocracy by buying estates. But most merchants were small traders of peasant status. It's important to realize that an agrarian society of this kind has no middle class of the modern sort, that is, a category of people whose occupations put them in a particular place in society, a status above the common people. 
Recent writers have argued that there would have been people who accumulated a moderate surplus of resources, people who in economic terms we might call middling, but some, such people, some merchants, some artisans, military veterans, such people would be found largely in the cities, and I doubt if there are any we can identify in the Gospels. Now, I haven't time in this lecture to go into a lot of detail about the contents of the handouts, the, uh, the social world of each of the four Gospels, as I've tried to reconstruct it. Um, it's material you may like to look through and draw some conclusions of your own um, at leisure. Um, but let me make some comments, um, focusing initially especially on Mark's Gospel. Um, I should say these charts are certainly not 100% accurate. Um, what I've done is to go by what indications there are available in the text uh, to place various characters in the Gospels. Um, uh, at the top of each sheet, you'll see I've, I've uh, classified a certain number out of, the, the second figure is the total number of individual characters in the Gospel. Of course, there are some people um, for whom we have no information and, and really can, cannot uh, even guess their place in the tables. So the tables are not 100% accurate, but what we're interested in uh, is the general picture, I think, that it emerges. Now, the fact that Mark, like the other Gospels, has such a large number of individual characters means that it's possible for these characters to portray <coughs> in some detail the social stratification of the narrative world of this Gospel. It is, of course, the narrative world that Mark, through the way he's used his sources, has constructed. But it's notable both that Mark has chosen to include so many individual characters whose place, whose various positions in the social hierarchy would have been quite clear to contemporary readers or hearers, and also that the result is a world that corresponds accurately to what we otherwise know of the social particularities of first century Jewish Palestine. The social world Mark portrays is predominantly the world of the common people. But it's also the case that both the highest category, the elite, and the lowest categories, the poor and the outcasts, are in numerical terms probably overrepresented. Of course, we should not be expecting some kind of statistical accuracy in representing the sociological composition of Jewish society. The characters figure in the story because of their roles in the story. But from this point of view, it is notable that unlike almost all narrative literature from the ancient world, the whole range of social categories from the ruling elite down to the outcasts is well represented. I've used bold print to mark out Jesus, his friends and followers, and the people he healed, and this enables the observation that Jesus' movement spans almost the whole social range, with supporters and beneficiaries from Joseph of Arimathea down to a leper and even Gentiles. And notice also that women are included right across this spectrum. 
This said, the concentration of beneficiaries in the lowest strata is contextually a very remarkable feature. Equally remarkable, perhaps, is the fact that with few exceptions, the elite appear in the story not for their own sake, so much as because of the way they impinge on the world of the common people. This, as we shall see, is the reverse of virtually all other ancient historiography, in which the common people appear only when and because they impinge on the lives of the elite. Mark's gospel turns history upside down. It's history from below in stark contrast to the history from above that was generally considered history as such in the ancient world. A few very brief comments, because I haven't much time on the, other, on the charts for the other Gospels. Um, the most interesting, I think, is for Luke, because Luke has many more characters than any of the other Gospels. The sheer number of characters in Luke is rather remarkable and provides, therefore, the richest data for analysis. Broadly, the pattern is the same, with more characters in all categories, Luke's attempt in chapters 2 and 3 of his gospel to place his narrative chronologically by reference to world history accounts for a large number of ruling elite figures, including even two Roman emperors. But the observation that most of the elite appear because of the way they impinge on the world of the ordinary people um, rather than the reverse holds as true for Luke as for the other synoptics. Matthew also presents much the same picture as Mark, while John's Gospel has, of all the Gospels, the fewest characters. Uh, the spread remains similar, but with one notable difference, I think, in John's Gospel. The proportionately large number of elite persons in the category of friends, followers, and beneficiaries of Jesus, especially members of the Jerusalem aristocracy. So the number of elite people in bold print indicates their association with Jesus is um, proportionately greater in John than in the other Gospels. In my view, this is indicative of the disciple circles from which John's special traditions mainly derive. They do shift the predominant perspective of this Gospel compared with the others. In this Gospel, we see Jesus and the world more from an elite perspective Though we should note that in John's rather drastic selection of miracle stories, he does include two healings of disabled beggars. The contrast between the social status of characters in the Synoptic Gospels especially and those of Greek-Roman historiography and biography in general could scarcely be more stark. Greco-Roman historiography and biography are exclusively concerned with the elite, whether as political rulers, generals, philosophers, or poets. When non-elite individuals appear, it is because they are needed in a story about the elite. And even so, the non-elite characters tend to be retainers rather than the common people. The common people occur only as large collectivities, the people, the masses, the mob, the troops. 
Two examples will illustrate the point, the historian Polybius and the biographer Plutarch, both of them towering figures in their literary context. Polybius' history of the Roman Republic's rise to dominate the Mediterranean world was widely seen as a model of good historiography. He wrote it after a distinguished political career and the aristocratic values of heroism, glory, honor, and duty pervade his work. Among its aims was to provide a handbook for politicians, an exploration of good and bad statecraft. Of course, good and bad statecraft entail managing the common people, but Polybius scarcely ever finds it necessary to refer to them other than collectively. Aristocratic disdain for the people, standard among the elites of the Greco-Roman world, appears in Polybius's frequent reference to the masses as stupid, greedy, driven by irrational anger and moral perversity. The same aristocratic contempt for the common people is found in the work of Plutarch, who in the first and second centuries AD wrote the largest collection of biographies in antiquity, of which 50 survive. All of the subjects of his biographies are rulers, generals, or orators. But in the genre of biography, which Plutarch himself says can accommodate smaller matters of personal life than the great affairs to which history is confined, one might expect more of the non-elite to appear. And there are indeed a few, but only a few, and always introduced for the sake of the part they played in stories about the elite. Well, that's by way of a general contrast with history and biography represented by Polybius and um, uh, Plutarch. Um, I want to add to that a somewhat more detailed comparison uh, in terms of social stratification between the Gospels and the life of Apollonius of Tyana, um, who has often been compared with Jesus as a somewhat similar figure. Apollonius of Tyana lived in the first century CE. His life apparently spanned most of the century. But the biography of him we have, there were a couple of others, but the biography of him that has survived and was the best known one, was not written until the early third century at the request of the Empress Domna, and it was written by Philostratus, an aristocratic philosopher who belonged to the Empress's literary circle at court. So we're already in a rather different social world from those of the Gospels. Among ancient biographies, this is remarkable for its length. It's much the longest uh, known ancient biography. Apollonius has often been compared with Jesus, and in fact, this was done at least as early as the early 4th century, when the pagan critic of Christianity, Hierocles, compared the two figures to Jesus' disadvantage. And the Christian scholar Eusebius of Caesarea wrote a response to Hierocles' book. Within the very broad and heterogeneous category of holy men in this period, it is probably true that Apollonius resembles Jesus more than most. They are 
Apollonius and Jesus are the only two such figures about whom a series of miracle stories have been preserved. But the differences are at least equally significant. And one of these is the social status of those in whose company these two figures are mostly to be found. According to Philostratus, Apollonius himself came from an aristocratic family, the wealthiest in the area, and had an expensive education. He is an itinerant Pythagorean philosopher, severely ascetic, renouncing wealth and all kinds of luxury and comfort, and conveying his moral and religious message both in public preaching in a direct and oracular style and in private conversations with individuals and groups, much like Jesus. He travels as far as India and Ethiopia to converse with the sages of those places. He lectures the assembled citizens of Greek cities. His typical conversation partners are other philosophers, students, emperors, kings, and members of the Roman aristocracy. A few individuals of the common people do appear in these stories, but they are rare. And even the common people en masse, the crowds, do not appear very often. While the narrative shows little of the prevalent aristocratic disdain for the common people, at least explicitly, they are fairly consistently ignored, and the perspective throughout is that of the elite. <clears throat> Perhaps the most interesting material for comparison with the Gospels are the stories of healings and exorcisms and other kinds of miracles that benefit particular persons. Of these individuals, five are of elite status, while the social status of one other cannot be determined. None are non-elite. Some of the stories are simply inconceivable within the Gospels. For example, story of a girl who died at the hour of her wedding and was raised to life again by Apollonius bears some resemblance to Jesus' raising of Jairus' daughter, but whereas the latter belongs only to the elite of a small Galilean village, the former belongs to one of the wealthiest families in Rome. When her relatives offer Apollonius a reward of 150,000 sesterces, he presents it to the young woman as her dowry. Despite his own renunciation of wealth, which is part of his philosophical vocation, Apollonius moves approvingly in a world of serious money. It is a pity, I think, that Eusebius' treatise against Hierocles has preserved so little of what this pagan critic of Christianity wrote, but there is one passage that shows his perception of the difference between the Gospels as history from below and Philostratus' history of Apollonius from above. He sees the contrast in terms of the social level of the authors and their sources. And of course, in his view, this was very much to the credit of the history of Apollonius and to the discredit of the Gospels. He says, whereas it is Peter and Paul and a few others of that kind men who were liars and uneducated and magicians, who have made a boast of the stories about Jesus, 
The stories about Apollonius were written by Maximus of Egi and by Damis the philosopher who lived constantly with him and by Philostratus of Athens, men of the highest education who out of respect for the truth and their love of mankind determined to give the publicity they deserved to the actions of a man at once well-born and a friend of the gods. And this passage is one of a number of pieces of evidence that unsympathetic readers of the Gospels were struck by the non-elite perspective and did not like it. Up till now, the data from the Gospels that I've brought forward for you to show that they are history from below has been the prominence of individuals from the common people. But we must now turn more briefly to the collective presence of the common people in the gospel narrative. We've already noticed in Polybius and Plutarch the contempt for the crowd that is common to aristocratic historians and biographers. The topic, in the, the topic of the crowd in the gospels is a complex one that deserves further study. Um, but I offer some general comments in the space available. I can only give some comments applying generally to the four Gospels rather than a more specific study of each Gospel. The terms the Gospels use interchangeably for the common people are plethos, multitude, hoi poloi, the many, and oklos, crowd. In elite literature, oklos tends to carry the most pejorative sense. But only once in the Gospels is it used in that way. In John 7.49, the aristocratic Jerusalem Pharisees say, but this crowd, which does not know the law, they are accursed. The statement deftly combines the general aristocratic contempt for the common people that was found throughout the Roman Empire with the special disdain of these Pharisees who mean that the uneducated common people do not know the scriptures well enough to see that Jesus cannot be the expected prophet or the Davidic Messiah. This attribution of aristocratic contempt for the masses to the villains of John's story cannot fail to evoke in the readers a more positive view of the common people, some of whom, after all, in the preceding passage, have correctly identified Jesus. So in John 7.49, the elite perspective on the crowd is represented unfavorably. The same happens in the passion narratives of the Gospels. The story of the plot of the chief priests to arrest Jesus and put him to death is dominated by their fear of the common people, who at Passover time form an unusually large gathering in Jerusalem. The chief priests hesitate to arrest Jesus because he is so popular with the crowds. This is typical of the way the ruling elite view the crowds in Greco-Roman historiography, where the mob are a frightening threat to the social order. It's behaviour driven by uncontrolled emotion. Wise rulers can keep the mob in order, but the fearful potential fearful potential of the mob is unleashed when a demagogue, an aristocrat greedy for power, flatters the masses and wins their support. 
Jesus was not an aristocrat, of course, but in every other respect, it's clear in the passion narratives that the Jewish ruling authorities perceive him as a demagogue. At the end of the, uh, well, some way through the passion narratives, at the point where the priests stir up the crowd to choose Barabbas, um, the crowd withdraws its support. The crowd whose support for Jesus has hitherto terrified the chief priests, at the end withdraws its support and calls for Jesus to be crucified. At this point, the crowd does conform to the common elite view that the people are fickle. But the passage also functions to portray Jesus as totally abandoned by human beings. First, the disciples have deserted him. Now the crowd cry for his execution. The crowd show the same lack of understanding of Jesus as the disciples do. A man who can let himself become a prisoner of the Romans cannot be the Messiah. Apart from lack of understanding, which the crowds show at other points in the gospel narratives also, the portrayal of the crowd in the gospels is generally positive. They flock to Jesus from all over Palestine, bringing the sick for healing. They follow him everywhere. They listen to his teaching. They're amazed at his mighty deeds and authoritative teaching. And Jesus address, addresses his call to discipleship to them. This generally positive portrayal is in marked contrast to the aristocratic contempt so characteristic of Greco-Roman history. At the many points in the gospel narratives where we are told the attitudes and reactions of the crowd to Jesus, we come as close as we probably can in ancient history to viewing events from the eyes of the common people in general. History from below, history from below as practiced by E.P. Thompson and others, is not just about non-elite people. It's history seen from the perspective of the non-elite people. And crucially, it's history seen from this perspective in which the common people are agents of their own history. Traditional history, including that of the Greco-Roman world, views them largely as the objects of the deeds and policies of the ruling elite. History from below reveals, in Thompson's words, the agency of working people, the degree to which they contributed by conscious efforts to the making of history. I've pointed out how difficult it is to observe this agency of the common people in the ancient world because the sources convey so exclusively the perspective of the elite. But I've also argued that the Gospels are remarkably different. In this respect, um, from, uh, they are remarkably different in this respect. The Gospels offer us the perspective of both the crowd, the common people en masse, and of individuals, most of whom belong to the non-elite strata of their society. Does this enable us to see these non-elite people as subjects of their own history? The Gospels are, among other things, biblical and Jewish salvation history. 
and therefore the chief agency in the history they recount. In a sense, the all-embracing agency is God's. The chief human agency is that of Jesus, who carries out God's purpose for the establishment of God's kingdom. I shall say more about that later. But first I want to point out that the Gospels stress on the agency of God and Jesus by no means renders the recipients of God's salvation passive or powerless, quite the opposite. Taking Mark's Gospel again as our example, we can see this in several ways. First, in relation to the crowd, we see the people from near and far coming to Jesus, bringing their sick and their demoniacs with the faith that Jesus can heal and deliver them. Second, individuals Jesus heals. Again and again, the people healed by Jesus not only voice their faith, but show it in the way they take action to reach Jesus' healing touch. Four friends of the paralytic show their enterprising faith in digging through the roof to get him into Jesus' presence. The hemorrhaging woman presses through the crowd to touch Jesus' garment. Bartimaeus ignores those who would have kept him out of Jesus' sight and, despite his, despite his blindness, blunders his way into Jesus' presence. To both the woman and the beggar, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. A rather one-sided statement, we might think, their faith would not have had this effect without Jesus' healing act, but one that emphasizes the active agency of those Jesus heals. This active faith is stressed also in several other cases. While in Nazareth, Jesus is said to have been able to do few miracles because of the people's exceptional lack of faith. Thirdly, the disciples. As well as healing and delivering those in need, Jesus repeatedly calls those who are able to active discipleship, sharing his own mission with them. He sends out the twelve with a mission to preach his own message and delegated authority to cast out demons. Thus, the impression the Gospels give of Jesus' ministry is of all kinds of activity going on around him, centred on him, but by no means confined to his own activity. Jesus becomes the centre of a mass movement, which is precisely why the authorities in Jerusalem see him as a demagogue inciting the masses. One person's incitement is another's inspiration. But the simple picture of Jesus enabling people, as it were, to take their history in their hands and change it is complicated by the steadily gathering indications in Mark's narrative that Jesus' way must lead him to the cross. The future looms not as what Jesus will do, but what will be done to him. In the Passion Predictions, a whole series of verbs where Jesus is the object of action. He will be betrayed, he will be rejected, despised, mocked, beaten and killed. Yet even this suffering is in a deeper sense action, for Jesus voluntarily undertakes it as his Father's will. But the movement Jesus led is shattered by these events, the disciples giving up, crowd disillusioned, and none but a few of the women keeping faith with him. 
to all appearances, the ruling elite has shown that, in fact, it does still hold the reins of history. The spectre of mob rule, the disruption of the existing order, always so feared by the elite, has been dispelled. Mark's narrative brings us to the point where all the activity of Jesus' ministry, his own and others, ends in failure, only to identify that failure as the point at which God acts to transform human agency in history. Jesus' movement, inspired of God though it was, has to come to this end in order to be reborn in a new way. Truly to save oneself, one must lose oneself, as Jesus says in Mark's Gospel. So my final section is called Jesus Crucified. History from below can go no lower than the cross. It was a cliché of ancient writers to call crucifixion the worst of deaths, it's porphyry, the most wretched of deaths, says Josephus, the most cruel and disgusting of punishments, says Cicero. Because it was the most painful way to die, it was also the supreme penalty in Roman law and was reserved especially for slaves and outcasts, which made it therefore also the most shameful of deaths. Crucifixion was the way the ruling elite disposed of people of no importance or made those who threatened the social order into people of no importance. The Roman elite themselves, of course, were legally exempt from this penalty. The extreme cruelty of crucifixion matched the constant fear of the elite that their own household slaves might murder them in their beds, that slave revolts would overturn the whole Roman order. 6,000 slaves were crucified at the end of Spartacus' slave revolt, or that violent rebels in the provinces, bandits, could plunge the Pax Romana into turmoil. The extreme cruelty of crucifixion was required as a deterrent to others. Hence the very public context of crucifixion and the placarding of the crime for which the victim was executed. Martin Hegel points out that many Greek and Roman writings, including political histories like those of Tacitus, memoirs of generals like Julius Caesar, rarely mention crucifixion, although in fact it was frequently occurring and frequently ordered by the heroes of these narratives. As Hengel puts it, crucifixion was widespread and frequent, but the cultured literary world wanted nothing to do with it. So it is that the gospel passion narratives are the fullest accounts of an actual crucifixion that have survived from the ancient world. Even they do not dwell on the physical cruelties that all readers knew well enough, but there are details that make the gospel accounts descriptions of this particular crucifixion rather than just a generalized account of any. Jesus was too weak to carry the crossbeam himself. He refused a narcotic. His hands and feet were nailed to the wood, not invariably the case. His height above the ground seems to have been greater than was always the case. He was offered sour wine to prolong his ideal, uh, sorry, to prolong his ordeal. And in fact, he died unusually quickly. Taking the physical torment as read, 
the Gospels give more attention to the taunts and mockery that began in Jerusalem with the soldiers' charade and continue while Jesus hangs on the cross. These are highly specific to Jesus' own case, revolving around his messianic claim, the crime which is placarded in the inscription above his head. The contradiction between king of the Jews and the condition of a slave or outcast that crucifixion declares him to be is fruitful ground for the mockery of those who witnessed it, but it also, for the writers of the Gospels, lies at the heart of the meaning of Jesus' death as purposed by God. It's important to note that that by crucifixion, (coughs) Jesus was degraded to the lowest place of social status. Or perhaps more accurately, he's excluded from any place at all in the social order, made into the most despicable and disposable of people. The Gospels make rather little of Jesus' own social status, deriving from his family in Nazareth. They take for granted that Jesus is a man of the common people, but far more important than Jesus' own social status in the Gospels is the company he keeps. He's not taunted for being an artisan, but for being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He acquires the social stigmata of those with whom he associates, so that in John's Gospel, he's treated as a sinner, as a Samaritan, and as a demoniac. According to the synoptics, in his arrest in Gethsemane, he's treated as a bandit, presaging the company he will keep on the cross. The final social degradation of Jesus then, the shame of the cross, the death of the slave and the outcast, is the consequence of his own self-degradation by association during his ministry. In this way, the Gospels enable us to see the cross as the climax of Jesus' loving identification with people of all sorts and conditions, something we can observe in those charts of the social status of individuals in the Gospels. Jesus' friends and disciples and those he heals come from all strata of society. The elite are not excluded, but with a very significant tendency towards the bottom of the scale. Those who were the least important socially, Jesus makes the most prominent in his own story. Consequently, the Gospels make visible the sort of people who are normally invisible in other ancient literature. In the case of Jesus' crucifixion, in which Jesus is degraded to the point of total degradation, the Gospels, by so unusually recounting the event and at such length, make shockingly visible the barbaric way that this society disposed of its outcasts. What the historians and the biographers shied away from recording, the Gospels exposed to full view. This, more than anything else, makes them so unusually history from below. Jesus himself, his way and his fate, makes them this. Jesus' crucifixion itself turns history upside down. Thank you.